When I, when I was a basketball coach, I was fortunate enough, in my opinion, to always coach in small schools, uh, which meant uh, I, we never had to cut anybody from our team. I would have hated doing that. Um, in, in high school, also, I played at a small school. Anybody could go out, right? Uh, we once had a kid on our team, a foreign exchange student who wanted to play. He was a Chinese kid from South America who spoke Portuguese. True story. And uh, uh, we called him Reggie, and we were winning by a lot, and Reggie got to go into a basketball game for the first time. Uh, he'd never played before. He just kind of sat on the end of the bench and was, was one of the guys, and and uh, he went and checked in, and then before running on the court, he ran back to the bench, and he had to take out the peanut M&Ms that he had stashed in his sock <laughs> that usually kept him company on the bench uh, before he could go. He didn't want to play with those. Um, but, you know, anyone could be on the team and be valued by the coach, appreciated by the coach, but not everyone got to play the same amount. Playing time was determined by lots of other things. And if a kid wanted to play more, he had to become a better player. He had to practice. He uh, had to spend time outside of the regular time the team was uh, collected for practice, working on the fundamentals of basketball, shooting and passing and dribbling and becoming a better athlete. Well, being on God's team is a little bit like that, though don't press that illustration, that metaphor too far, because there's holes in it. But we do not get to be a part of God's team through merit. We were, we were chosen for His team. And he loves us not because of how good we are at this, but because of how good Jesus was at this. But once we are on his team by faith, how do we expect to, to sort of get any better at this without practicing the things of the faith? Far too many Christians are far too satisfied to float through life just as a member of the team. And what we miss, what we don't realize, is that Jesus came to give us life and give us life to the full. And that, not, that is not merely the life we will get someday after we die. There is a full life right now to be had that is full of joy and peace and hope. But not everyone receives the fullness of those, of those things, those, those feelings, that hard position. We have to grow into those things that are free to receive. In Christ. The book of James is a very practical book. And it's about practical application of Christian principles with an eye toward spiritual 
growth, maturity in Christ. And we're starting not just a new chapter, but a new section in this book where James is going to get very practical. James is going to be telling us, this is what it would look like if, if you were growing in, in Christ. This is what, it would I, what I would look like if I were growing in Christ. And he's going to be telling us, this sort of thing here, this is wrong. This sort of thing here, this is right. And there are consequences for failing at those things, but we have to constantly remind ourselves what those consequences are and are not. Because when we fail at the fundamentals of this faith, we don't get kicked off God's team. We don't get cut from the team. Paul told us, for there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Paul writes to a Christian, and I would say to you this morning, I don't know how you blew it this week, but I'll bet you blew it this week. And I would tell you there's now, even though you blew it this week, no condemnation for you if you are in Christ Jesus. Well, how do you get in Christ Jesus? Pastor Matt, well, I'm glad you asked. We get to be in Christ Jesus by faith, by trusting the only way toward God, to God, for God to look at me a way where he loves me and welcomes me and adopts me is by believing that Christ suffered the punishment I deserve for my sin through faith. When we believe in Jesus, God bestows on us a free gift of his grace, a declaration of perfection and righteousness. That's what gets us on this team. So succeeding at the things James will be talking to us about in the book of James from here on out and failing at those things James will be writing to us about for the rest of the book. They don't, it's not the difference about being on God's team and not being on God's team. Being loved by God and not being loved by God. Being accepted, being rejected. Those things were taken care of at the cross. The moment you first believed. But we should not expect to receive the full benefit in our hearts and in our lives and in our relationships that Christ offers us if we don't practice the, the, the things of the faith that he taught us and that his half-brother James will be teaching us. Today in the first half of James chapter 2, James is going to, to zero in on just, just one thing that will stunt our growth in Christ. Just one. And that thing is partiality. Favoritism. It's something that can keep us from growing in the likeness of Christ and keep us from the fullness of the life that he offers those who would follow him. Let's read the first 13 verses of James chapter 2 together and stop looking at that disgusting toe 
on the screen right there. Brett actually, uh, he actually modeled for us for that picture right there. We're going to take up, take up a collection for a pedicure for Brett after this is over. Uh, James chapter 2 begins this way. My brethren, do not hold your faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ with an attitude of personal favoritism. For if a man comes into your assembly with a gold ring and dressed in fine clothes, and there also comes in a poor man in dirty clothes, and you pay special attention to the one who's wearing the fine clothes, and you say, you sit here in a good place. And you say to the poor man, you stand over there, or you sit down here by my feet. Have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil motives? Listen, my beloved brethren. Did not God choose the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Is it not the rich who oppress you and personally drag you into court? Do they not blaspheme the fair name by which you have been called? If, however, you are fulfilling the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as, a, as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one point, he has become guilty of all. For he who said, do not, com- do not commit adultery, also said, do not commit murder. Now, if you do not commit adultery, but do commit murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged by the law of liberty. For judgment will be merciless to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over justice. Excuse me, over judgment. There's our passage. We find the main idea for the whole section, for the whole passage in verse 1. Verse 1 is kind of awkward in the Greek, so it gets translated a number of different ways. But the main idea is easy enough to grasp. The main idea for this whole passage is something like this. James says, don't try to to hold on to this faith in our glorious Lord Jesus in one hand while also being partial, showing favoritism, discriminating amongst different kinds of people in the other. Because those two things don't mix. I cannot mature in my faith in Christ. I can't be becoming more and more like Jesus while discriminating uh, amongst whom I will associate with, accept, reach out to on the basis of things like uh, economic status, social status, um, ethnicity, race, family of origin, talent, ability, anything like that. That's the main idea. Now, once he has stated that, partiality and this faith of ours don't mix. James gives an example to his original audience. He sets up basically, it's like a pretend social experiment. James says, we'll do a little test to see if you have a partiality problem. Apparently, his original audience had this problem. James says, let's say a guy walks into your, and this would have been smaller house churches that he would have been reaching out to, but let's just say a guy walks in to be a part of your assembly, and you can tell from first glance that this guy's worth a lot of money. 
the way he's dressed, his jewelry. And at the same time, or on the same morning, another man walks in, and you can tell by looking at him and maybe smelling him that he doesn't have near the status the first guy did. His clothes are shabby. His hair needs attention. Paul says, excuse me, James says, is there a difference in how you would welcome those two people into your church? Verse 4, he says, because if so, you've got yourself a partiality problem. This, this exact type of discrimination is, is very common in churches throughout the world. Most churches in the world struggle financially. And the, the temptation to cater things toward the desires of those who have maybe the ability to give the most real dollars is a real temptation in many churches. And James says it is not to be that way for us. But that's not the only application of James's pretend experiment here. Because it may not be financially that you would discriminate. It might be, it might be other things. It might be people's talents, people's looks. It might be where people are from. It might be any kinds of things. What are the things that would make it more likely for you to reach out, befriend, sit with? welcome another person. James says, if there's a difference, right? how likely are we to look not at character, but at other things? James says, that makes you like judges with evil. This translation says with evil thoughts. A better translation would probably be judges with evil motives. You think that sounds like a good thing or a bad thing if your judge has evil motives? If you found yourself in court, either as the defendant or the plaintiff, and you learned the judge had evil motives, that would be a real problem, wouldn't it? James says that's what it makes us like when we show this kind of partiality, this kind of favoritism that he's describing. If we're honest, we will, we will all have a problem here in our flesh. It may be the upside-down version of this, though. You might not like people who do have lots of money instead of those who don't. You might like people who do have a high status in wherever else. But we'll all be able to find ourselves here if we're honest. But why is that such a bad thing? What's so, what's so wrong with partiality? That's the rest of the passage. For the rest of the passage, James is he's going to most of the rest of it, he's going to give us three reasons why this sort of favoritism or partiality is wrong and stunts our growth as Christians. The first reason partiality is wrong is because God is not like that. 
God is unlike partiality, favoritism. In verse 5, James reminds his audience that it is, it is for the poor that, that, that Jesus came. Has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich through this faith, to inherit the kingdom he promised to those who loved him? You know, there's a, there's a truth in this section that we, we really have to let sink into our hearts. Uh, in verse 1, James called Jesus the glorious Lord Jesus. And he's just that. You know, anytime the Bible talks of Jesus having glory, the Bible is calling him God. Because in Isaiah, God told Israel, I will not share my glory with another. If Jesus has glory in and of himself, it's because he's God. Now, how big is the difference between you and God? Financially, socially, talent-wise, ability, you name it. There's an infinite gap between me and God in any of those areas. Isn't that true? What James is saying here is if God could lower himself to be accepting of you, which he has, shouldn't we be able to lower ourselves to be accepting of others? Absolutely. How is it that God came to save us? He came to save us by lowering himself. And the gap was massive. Paul wrote to the Corinthians, he said, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that through his poverty you might be rich. Jesus was God. Paul said elsewhere to the Philippians, he he lowered himself. He gave up some of the glory that made him God to become like a servant, like the, the lowest kind of human. You know, Isaiah tells us that if we had seen Jesus in his earthly ministry, there's nothing about him physically that would have drawn us to him. Just, just once, just once, when someone makes a movie or a TV series about the life of Jesus, just once I would like them to cast Jesus as not the tallest, not the handsomest, not the guy with the best hair, Maybe that's just me. Because I don't think, I think, you think Jesus just looked like whatever the average Jewish dude looked like. Because he didn't lower himself to be, you know, a, a fair-skinned Jew, tall, a head taller than everyone else with somehow gleaming blue eyes. He just looked like a Jewish dude of average height. And then he lowered himself further to be tortured and humiliated by human beings he was so much greater than. Why? To befriend us so that he might be able to call us friends and his. All of us who have been redeemed by faith in the blood of Jesus 
that we were chosen by God for this salvation we share. And none of us were chosen because of how much we have in common with God. None of us were chosen because of how much he wanted to hang out with us because of something in us he found attractive. Simply because he wanted to love one who didn't deserve it, like me. That's why partiality is counterproductive to the Christian who wants to grow in likeness to Jesus. Because he is so much not like that. Now, the second reason partiality is so wrong is because the rest of the world is like that. This is part of what is supposed to differentiate the Christian from the non-Christian. The first, the first verse of the book of James lets us know that James was writing to uh, the, some of the very first Christians. They were all Jewish Christians who had begun to be persecuted by their friends and family, hated, cast out, disowned. We pick up today, they are being apparently taken into court for who knows what reason, just because they're Christians. And so now James says, isn't this, isn't partiality the way the rest of the world treats you guys? Don't they hate you because you claim the name of Jesus? That's, that's partiality. That's discrimination. That's how the rest of the world treats you. That's why it has no place in here. We should be the last people on earth who should be par- partial to a certain kind of person over another. Now, this is still a very powerful thing in most of the rest of the world. America is such a unique place, and I'm so grateful for it. America is one of the, this, this little snippet of time in the West. There's just, just been this little snippet of time where a person could be like a card-carrying, uncloseted Christian and still have social status, like have lots of friends be popular. Most of the people who claim Christ in the rest of the world haven't had that luxury. Still today in India, there are millions of Christians in India, and almost all of them are from the very lowest, we'll call it classes, castes in Indian society. Almost all of them. You know why? Because the people in the upper classes, they think Christianity is a sham. It's a joke. It's this joke way that those lesser sorts of people can claim some sort of status like we have. Christianity, of course they want to believe in that upside down thing in Christianity where the the less become more, the last become first. The foolish shame the wise, the have-nots shame the haves. Of course they would believe in that. But they reject it outright. Because they think there's something already. James, he's just saying this shouldn't be like us. That's the way, the way the rest of the world acts. Do you know naturally in our flesh, and all of us have one, do you know who we tend to favor in the world? 
all of us, each of us, we tend to favor people in the world that we think can benefit us in some way. It might be financially, it might be socially, but we tend to favor people we think can do something for us in our flesh. But God's not like that. The rest of the world is like that. God came for us when we could do nothing for him. So James says, partiality is wrong because God's not like that. Partiality is wrong because the rest of the world is like that. And then James says, partiality is wrong because it violates what James calls the royal law. He says, if you really keep the royal law, and then he tells us what he means by the royal law, love your neighbor as yourself, James calls the royal law. Now, he doesn't tell us why he calls it the royal law. It's not called the royal law anywhere else in the scripture, but it's not hard to to at least have a couple of good guesses. One reason love your neighbor as yourself can be called the royal law is because the king is the one who said it. Uh, Jesus quoted this. It's actually from the Old Testament, but Jesus, when he was asked to summarize the law, he said this. He summed it up in two commands. He said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your strength, and with all your mind, and then love your neighbor as yourself. And he said, the whole law, all of God's standards of righteousness can be summed up in these two things. Love God, love others, the end. But really... We really only need half of that to be doing the whole law. And I don't care which half you pick. If you love God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and all your strength, you know what you will do? You'll love your neighbor as yourself. When we don't love, our, love others the way we love ourselves, you know why that is? It's because we don't love God with all we have. Here's why it works that way. If I realize how God loved me and I love him back with all that I am and all that I have, all of my needs to belong, to be accepted, to be loved, are so met in him that I won't ask the rest of the world to give me those things. So now I'm open to love others the way I want to be loved because I'm really not trying to get all of my needs met from people. That's why we are partial. I don't want to reach out to a person like this because other people might think I'm like that. And if I'm like that, they might reject me and I'm trying to get my acceptance needs met needs met through them so that's why I have to reject this person too so that I can be accepted by these folks over here that's why we do that stuff if we love God with all our hearts and we realize how much he loves us I am free to love a person like that whatever that means and it doesn't matter as much what they say about me or who they think I am because I get who I am from him not them And so if I love the Lord with all my heart and all my soul and all my strength and all that stuff, I will love my neighbor as myself. And the opposite's also true. If I'm loving my neighbor as myself, the only way I can do that is if I love God first and I have all those needs met in him. 
Jesus' best friend John told us once, if anyone says, I love God, but hates his fellow Christian, he's lying to himself about loving God. Because the one who does not love his fellow Christian whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. All that's why James can say the royal law is love your neighbor as yourself. Because if we could just do that one, we'd be doing all of them. I can't steal from you and love you at the same time. I can't be jealous of you and love you at the same time. We could go through every sin the same way. So this is about growing in our faith. That's what this book is about. Are we growing? Are we maturing? Are we becoming more and more like Jesus? Are we pursuing His sanctification of me that He offers to do in me? Well, James says, if you're loving your neighbor as yourself, you are, you're doing well. You're doing good. Doing good at what? At growing to be more and more like Christ. Don't read the book of James as a test to see whether or not you're going to heaven when you die. Don't do it. You'll wind up either thinking you're not going to heaven when you die, or you'll think, uh, or you'll deceive yourself into thinking you're doing what's written in the book of James. The book of James is, though, written for you and I to ask this question Am I growing in likeness to Christ? Well, let me see. James says, are you loving your neighbor as yourself? That's the test. And what we believe about God, it does affect the way we treat others. It does, if I understand how truly accepted I am, uncaused by me, by God, that will make me more accepting of people who are not like me. We can't help it. We studied the books of Samuel a while back. The very beginning of 1 Samuel, we read this. The Lord makes people poor and rich. He brings low and he exalts. He raises the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with nobles and inherit a seat of honor for the pillars of the earth are the Lord's and he set the world on them. Do you believe that's true? Careful. Do you practically, honestly believe? The wealthy person in our community is wealthy because God decided they would be wealthy. Do you believe the poorer person in our community is in their financial situation because God decided that was going to be their station? That's what that says. See, we want to believe we got where we got because of who we are. And that gives me the right to not like someone who's not where I am. Because the difference was me. If we really believe the Bible, and I see a person who has more than me or a person who has less than me, I see what God decided. It's of no merit in them or 
demerit in them. A good portion of this sanctification process where we're maturing to become more and more like Christ is about finding blind spots, things we don't see that are problems. How many of you are getting ready at home this morning? You know, I, I always put in the bulletin what, what next week's uh, passage is going to be. How many of you read that this morning and thought, oh man, I can't wait to go and hear about partiality and discrimination this morning. Mmm, that's just going to fill my heart. No! Like none of us want to drink this medicine. But how are we going to grow if we don't find where we need to grow? Growing in Christ is about finding the spots where we need to grow. And listen to what James says in the rest of his argument. He says, if you show favoritism, you sin. And you're convicted by the law as lawbreakers. And then he says this very famous verse, for whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. And we usually use that as proof that as soon as someone sins one sin, they need a savior. They're not going to be good enough. And that's true. It's just not the context James says that verse. Here's what James is saying. The law is a package deal. It's not a menu. We don't get to pick and choose which parts we're good at and think we're mature because look how good I am at this thing that other people aren't good at. It's the, it's the whole thing. James says it this way. If you're, if you're partial, sort of discriminatory in who you accept and befriend and want to hang out with, James says it's a lot like a guy who's an actual murderer but says, well, yeah, but I never, I never cheated on my wife, so get off my back. Would that be ridiculous? I mean, so I've killed a few folks. But I've been faithful to my wife, so I'm a good guy. Let's think about all the people I didn't sleep with and forget about all the people I did murder. That would be ridiculous, wouldn't it? James says, if you're a partial Christian, that's what you're doing. It's a package deal. If we want to grow in the likeness to Christ, we've got to find our blind spots and ask him to address those in us. And partiality is a big one. He concludes... We're talking about judgment, freedom, and mercy. James says, behave down here on earth like we realize who we're going to stand in front of someday. Speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom. And he says, because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. That's James's advice, his parting advice where we close this section uh, of the book. Keep in mind who you're going to be standing in front of when this life is over. We've talked about this recently in this book, but the judgment that James is concerned with in his book 
is not the judgment that determines who goes to heaven and who goes to hell. It's what's called the judgment seat of Christ that heaven-bound people will stand before Jesus and be and be have our lives judged. Now, how do you want Jesus to treat you on that day? <laughs> Merciful, mercifully, right? Jesus taught this. He's like, hey, with the, the way the way you judge others is the way I will judge you. Now listen, that does not mean a Christian is never to judge someone else's behavior. That's not true. The most misused uh, sentence probably in the whole Bible is judge not, lest ye be judged. We have to understand what that means. James has told us, what's the, what's the royal law? How are you supposed to love people? The way you love yourself. Well, if I love myself, doesn't that mean I'll be looking for blind spots in me? If I love myself, I, do I not want to see what God says is best happening in my life? If I love myself, I won't just excuse and ignore my own bad behavior until the bottom falls out, and here I am at rock bottom again. If I love my, if I care about myself and my own life, I'm looking for that stuff so I can expose that to him, confess that, repent of that, and praise him while he grows me. That's, the, that's what it means to love yourself. So now, if I'm going to love someone else the way I love myself, I will do the same thing with him or her. But my judgment will be gracious and merciful. It will be because I love you. I want to show you something I, you apparently don't see. In fact, I think this will be part of our judgment on Judgment Day. When we stand before the Lord... And he'll say, man, uh, I'll pick on Dwayne just because I made eye, no, never make eye contact, Dwayne. Right? It, it, let's say Dwayne was involved in doing something he's not involved in doing, but something terrible. I knew about that. And I didn't care enough about Dwayne to confront him. In my judgment, if I stand before the Lord, might, might the Lord say, Matt, you saw your brother Dwayne. You weren't willing to risk the discomfort of sharpening your brother. If you loved him, you would have. Now, praise God. Praise God. Our eternal life is not dependent upon anything at that judgment. Our eternal life is dependent upon his judgment at the cross. But James says, man, behave down here, O Christian. Like you're, you're cognizant, you're going to stand in front of someone who is perfect at the law. And taking it back to partiality, because of what this is about. Do you really want Jesus to say, oh, I see. You really had no time for it, had no stomach for people who were lower than or less than you. Should we do that now? 
Jesus will say, between me and you, please know, are we growing in likeness to Christ? If so, when that kind of faith is working its way out in me, I will be less partial. I will be more accepting. There won't be near as many people who are uh, below, beneath, uh, unpalatable to me because of their circumstances. But I will also be willing to graciously sharpen a brother or sister in an area they're not seeing. And I, and I should welcome that for me because I want you to love me the way you're supposed to love you. And when that is working, we will be more like Jesus because he loved the unlovely. Though he didn't just excuse bad behavior. Where are your condemners? Do they condemn you? No one, sir. I do not condemn you either, but go and sin no more. That's Jesus. That's the impossible target we're still shooting at. Let's pray and then we'll go to the, to the table together. Our Father, I thank you for your word, even the uncomfortable parts, uh, which is the entire book of James for us. Father, thank you that you, uh, you came for us. You lowered yourself. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you came to serve, not to be served, but to serve and to give your life as a ransom for many And Lord, we, we want to practice this faith to become more like you. So Lord, convict us of how we are partial in ways you do not like. Because we know what is best for us is being more and more like you. So have your way in us. Sanctify us in the truth. And your word is truth. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, when we celebrate this table, we're celebrating the greatest act of impartiality that ever happened. The greatest act of welcoming those who did not deserve to be welcomed. Because this table is for anyone. Now, if you don't believe in Jesus, I'm going to invite you to, to not share in this right now because it's like not for you right now. But you're, you are invited for it to be about you because there is not a single kind of person that is outside of the reach of the blood of God shed on a tree. He does not discriminate. doesn't matter where you came from what you do for a living, what you have in the bank, how you dress, none of it. If you believe in Jesus, you're a child of the king, a full-on heir. That's what it means that he communes with us. He befriends us. We're, we're, we're eating together with our God symbolically. Father, as the, as the men come forward to pass around the, the symbol of the body of Jesus, 
We know we are symbolizing a meal of fellowship where you decided to become our friend, but you had to pay the punishment our sins required first. Thank you for lowering yourself to our level to become our sin, to adopt us and make us your kids. Thank you for your perfect impartiality. In Jesus' name, amen.